This is May 1st, 2022, Labor Day for most people in the world. And uh, I'd like to, since this is my first uh, Tay Show, first day here in Rochester in six months, uh, I want to start by thanking uh, Sensei, John Pauline Sensei, for having shouldered the task of teaching here, uh, being at the helm of the center for the past six months. It's a great, uh, great generous thing he did in accepting this uh, partnership with me of him doing it for six months and alternating with me for six months. Generous. He, uh, he would have had so many good reasons to decline, but he stepped in. And from absolutely everything I've heard, he's been doing a great job. It's one of the uh, reasons. It's been a oh, winter of contentment for me, just knowing that things are in good hands here, have been. For uh, those of you who might <clears throat> ask this very broad question of me later on as to how it's been, how uh, these six months have been, um, I've gone into some length in an uh, article that will appear in the next issue of Zenbo. And what makes me think of this now is that uh, uh, I could, you could, could summarize the article with the title I gave it, which is Winter of Contentment and Loss. Thanks also to uh, the Zoom monitors, the, mo the people monitoring the Zoom sittings. This has been my thread of connection uh, from Florida. It's a, it's a really a, another generous and, and uh, compassionate act to to do these to do, to do that. Uh, it's uh, after a while. I'm told it's it's somewhat routine, but there are always things that can go wrong, and uh, you need good people who can uh, troubleshoot, who can. Uh, be alert and mindful to keep things on track in these Zoom sittings and Teishos, I guess, also talks of any kind, Dharma talks. So what I, uh, I thought I would do this morning, I was going to uh, comment on the uh, recent uh, self-immolation of a... Uh, young man or middle-aged man from on the, on the steps of the uh, Supreme Court but uh, I just thought I'd rather put that off a bit and uh, and dive into one of the great central texts of Zen which is what we just chanted five minutes ago together the Hakuin chant Master Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen and uh, in preparing this morning, I didn't, I didn't really start till this morning. We just got in last night, 
uh, we uh, got moved into our um, studio apartment, uh, Angela and I, that we'll be renting for the month of May. And uh, then at, in, after that, she'll go back to Florida and I'll move into the Zen Center. For the live here for the first time in 30 years or 30 some years but uh, in preparing for this uh, I was reminded as I have been in the past when I've commented on it that it's uh, it is such a rich uh, text that uh, I probably am not gonna get much more than halfway today and so I'd like to resume uh, next next Sunday with uh, part two, um, I would I would call this the Hakuin chant one of the three uh, most important uh, texts, short texts that uh, anyone could could learn and uh, delve into endlessly. Uh, the other two is the affirming faith in mind and. Uh, of course, the Prajnaparamita. These three, or really any one of them, uh, really goes to the essence of this Dharma. And uh, I've continued to find each one of them inexhaustible. So let's kick it off with the first line From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. This lays down the very core article of faith in Zen. Every one of us is Buddha. Let's just, again, look at uh, the word Buddha. Uh, when, it's, when it's plural, Buddhas, it refers to uh, the enlightened ones, anyone who's come to awakening. You can define that differently. You could say who comes to full full enlightenment, all the Buddhas of the past. Uh, it could be even someone who is even more faintly experienced the truth of, of, of the Dharma, of, of seeing into her own nature, uh, or the, the other way of putting it is the nature of reality. That's plural, Buddhas. Buddha is, I would see just as shorthand for our Buddha nature true self, our self-nature, our original nature, our original mind, the closest thing we have in, in Zen to God. And uh, it lays it right out, Hakuin lays it out from the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Originally, way back in the 70s, when we started chanting this, um, we had from the beginning all beings are Buddha and then we added the, the word very from the very beginning just for emphasis a very beginning all beings are Buddha but even the word beginning could raise questions the beginning what came what's that mean what's the beginning what would be before that or To even use a term like the beginning or, or the end, such terms are dualistic and they really uh, address only half of 
reality of things as they are. The other half is the beginningless and endless nature of reality. From one side, we, from one angle, uh, from one side of the coin, we can talk about beginnings and endings and now and then and forward and backward and past and future. And that's all valid. That's, that's, that's valid enough, but it's not complete. The complete is, is also the other side of the coin, the beginningless, the undifferentiated. what is beyond time. But um, masters like Hakuman use these terms and it's counting on us to see through the words. So he he uses the word beginning from the very beginning. All beings are Buddha. All beings. Without exception. are equally endowed, no more or no less, no one more, no one less, are equally endowed with this luminous mind of enlightenment. It's not something that we we can uh, hope to acquire or could even need to acquire. It's beyond awakening. We already have it. We are it. It's not have. We are it, every one of us equally. Putin, from the beginning, Buddha, Buddha nature. It's, it's, it's a, it is, we could say it's a potentiality, but it's more than that. It's a reality. Again, the two sides, it depends on how you look at it. until we realize, and I suppose until we fully realize our innate Buddha nature, then we can do all kinds of terrible things the way Putin is. But still doesn't take away from, any, from the fact that he is Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. I love the words of Zen Master Dogen from uh, 13th century Japan. No ordinary being ever became a Buddha. Only Buddhas become Buddhas. This reference to water and ice comes from one of the uh, most esteemed of the uh, Mahayana texts. It's called uh, The Awakening of Faith by... Uh, uh, it just gives last name, Ashvagosha. Ashvagosha, the name will be familiar to people who uh, have are familiar with our uh, 
ancestral line. Ashvagosha was in the, lived in the between the first and the second centuries in Indian, uh, who uh, uh, was well. He became. He was first. He was a philosopher. He was considered a great philosopher, and then he became uh, joined the ancestral line as a great enlightened person. And I fished out of here uh, my own copy of the Awakening of Faith to uh, where Hakuin got this reference to water and ice. Uh, here is. Here are the words of uh, the translated words of Ashvagosha. This is like the relationship that exists between the water of the ocean, that is our enlightened nature, our original mind, the water of the ocean, and its waves, which are the uh, this discursive mind, stirred by the wind, the wind he says here of ignorance. Water and wind are inseparable. But water is not mobile by nature, and if the wind stops, the movement ceases. But the wet nature remains undestroyed. Oh yeah, I see here that this is not exactly what, what Hawkins is talking about. There's no mention here of, of ice. Let me see, I may have gotten the wrong... It's a, maybe a different one here for the ice thing. Well, that's all I've got right now. Uh, but we can appreciate the the uh, intimate relationship between water and ice. <clears throat> you can say that uh, uh, there is no ice without water. Um, they're not exactly the same. If you asked uh, for a glass of water and someone brought you a glass of ice, it wouldn't be the same. And yet they're not essentially different. So we are, we are, we are all Buddha. We are all Buddhas originally. And yet, not in practical terms, the way we, we think and speak and act. What Ashvagosha was saying there is, is, is very much the same. There's the, the ocean, which for the purpose of this analogy is is still the the, the deeper reaches of the ocean is st- still that's our our mind our luminous mind of silence deep calm undisturbed mind and then there are the waves on the surface which is everything else the way we go through our daily lives with anxiety and preoccupations, worrying. They're not really two, fundamentally. And yet, they're not exactly the same.
how near the truth, yet how far we seek. There it is. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Close, closer to this essential nature of ours is closer than our own eyebrows. We're like fish in water that don't know they're in water. The, the, the big mistake that we make until awakening is to think of the truth as something out there that we have to get to. Each one of us is the truth. Each one of us is the truth. Why would we need to get it somewhere? And yet, until we know this, until we've realized for ourselves that each one of us is the truth, then inevitably there is this grasping for it. And that's nothing we, we need to apologize for, of course. Uh, if we have a sense that there is something that we can realize, then we strive for it. So that, so that someday we can see there is nothing to grasp apart from our own self, our own, uh, separate from who we are. And then he, see how important this is to Haku and then he switches, adds another analogy like a child of rich birth wandering poor on this earth we endlessly circle the six worlds this comes from uh, the Lotus Sutra parable of the basically it's one that's not just in Asia it's the, the prodigal son prodigal daughter who wanders out of the palace uh, and is lost to the king, queen, and wanders for years and years uh, as a child, first as a child, and having no idea that he's fundamentally of royal, royal birth. And then the day comes when he just happens on his rounds of homelessness, happens to wander in front of a palace, of course has no memory of having been born there, but the king spots him and recognizes him and restrains himself from going out and throwing his arms around his now uh, adolescent son. Instead, has one of his men offer the young man a place, a job, working. Uh, the king is wise enough to know that uh, you can't just couldn't just say, hey, you're my son, I'm the king, you're my son. Uh, it wouldn't be, okay, that the son could never believe it. And so he's wise enough to uh, recognize that it has to be, you have to grow into it. The son has to grow into his uh, birthright, let's say. And then you know the rest. So over time, the son grows into it. 
and uh, assumes his place on the throne. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. So until then, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The six worlds, for many of you, will this will be a, a repetition, but uh, the six worlds are the three, excuse me, the six realms of unenlightened existence. It's just a way that in traditional Buddhist texts, they would differentiate the different types of unenlightened life. And so it starts with the three lowest realms, the realm of hell. Don't have to go far with your imagination to recognize that hell, one hellish realm now is Ukraine, Mariupol, Buka or Baka, that other place. So many other hells we read about. There's the just the psychic hell of being in terrible anguish. So the lowest realm is hell, a hellish existence. The second one up is realm of uh, what they have called over the centuries the hungry ghosts and thirsty spirits, those who are uh, endlessly unfulfilled, filled with craving. I always think of uh, drug and alcohol addiction for the hungry ghosts and thirsty spirits. The next one up of the three lowest realms is that of, of animals who are bound to action and reaction and often fear, eat or be eaten. This too can find counterparts to even within uh, human existence, people like this. And the next one up generally is the realm of uh, fighting spirits or uh, uh, sometimes they call them titans. The way I take that is to people who are driven to overpower others, to uh, vanquish others. And then usually the human realm, it's, 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 the order is not always the same depending on the text, but then the, the, the second highest of the six realms is that of the human realm. What defines the human realm? Uh, self-consciousness would be one way of understanding it. Self-consciousness. Aware of the certainty of our death and the uncertainty of the time of death. Another way to understand the human realm a sort of a central way is, is a, it's a realm of dilemmas, facing dilemmas. I want this, but I want that. And I don't want that, but I want this. And I prefer this. The, uh, the Affirming Faith in Mind addresses this right at the outset. Um, 
the great way is not difficult for those who, who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. As humans, we are, we are bound in, in every, every single day, maybe every hour, by our likes and dislikes, our, our, our preferences, our aversions, and our passions as a human realm. And then the, the highest of the un, again, these are unenlightened realms, the highest is uh, the realm of devas, which means uh, people, as I understand it, people of great privilege, great fortune, beauty, success, wealth, pleasure, All of this is, is to say that, to repeat here, um, like a child of rich birth, we've wandered poor on this earth. We endlessly circle the six worlds. So we go, we rise and we fall through these realms. Not necessarily all of them all the time, but we, uh, we can ascend in, in, in accordance with our, our karma, our ever-fluctuating karma, and we can descend. You can see this, you know, with people in the public eye, like celebrities or sometimes uh, uh, people in the media. That are it's their 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 falls from grace. They're they're uh, are so blindingly uh, revealed that we can see this kind of thing. They go from uh, huge, stupendous salaries, being adored by hundreds of millions of people, actors, actors, singers, to uh, just plummeting. But that's, that's an, usually is not that dramatic. It's just the way we, we, the, we, the ups and downs in our, in our lives and the, uh, how it can suddenly turn with just a single event, send us tumbling into a lower realm. A great deal of our our experience in these going up and down in these six realms is is a function of the mind how we experience the circumstances we go through, the conditions we go through. Again, from the affirming faith in mind, things are things because of mind. Our, the realms we find ourselves going through, to, to a large extent, not entirely, but to a large extent are determined by the mind. And so it is the most intelligent thing in the world to undertake and maintain a meditation practice. It can make all the difference in our, our experience of life. To the degree that we are pitched back and forth by our, our thoughts, uh, 
we will be caught in these in these six realms. Habit, though, is so strong. We're so habituated to our thoughts. It's hard to uh, pull free of them. And then he, again, Hakuin, the cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. There it is, right there. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. The delusion that there's a me here and a you out there. And that there is an us and a them. This is the cause of our sorrow. Again, the intelligence of meditation as a way of seeing through this notion of a separate self. Self and other. Yes, us and them. And that he then elaborates from dark path to dark path. We've wandered in darkness. Look at that. Three times he uses words uh, referring to darkness. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. This is someone, Hakuin, who has seen his own share, has lived his own share of darkness. He went through terrible times before he came to practice. He was tormented by mental pain. And uh, we all know, I think we'd all agree that the time that we're going through now, these last couple of years and, uh, well, maybe some years to come is a period of darkness compared to other earlier years in our lifetimes. We could have found plenty of darkness in our lives uh, before re these recent times, but now, now, war, the war in Ukraine, poverty, poverty exacerbated by inflation, galloping inflation is causing so much pain to so many people. Political divisions ever worsening, deepening political discord. Speaking of us and them. Never knew it could get this bad where one's tribal affiliation uh, is Trump's, I'll use that word, Trump's science and even self-interest. And of course, all this against the backdrop of the pandemic, COVID grinding on. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? 
is a cry of, of anguish on Hakoan's part. <clears throat> Mirroring those who, who may reach such extremity that they ask, how can I ever get, get beyond, get free of this gain and loss? Birth and death, just really more broadly understood, is this means gain and loss, coming and going, impermanence. Samsara. Birth and death just means samsara, the world of suffering, of ascending and descending through the six realms of unenlightened existence. How can we be free And many answers. In the same terms, the gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Samadhi. Seeing beyond all of these dichotomies, self and other, us and them and everything else, experiencing this other realm of consciousness that is unscored, unmarred by differentiation. Zazen Samadhi, of course, doesn't just mean the sitting, sitting in Samadhi, but then finding this undifferentiated realm uh, in the world of differentiation, in the world of coming and going and loss and impermanence. We can sometimes even experience this. Uh, it's not a real, a real samadhi is, is uncommon. Sometimes I, I think people use that word too loosely. Uh, and let's let's be frank, your best chance of experiencing samadhi is in Sashin. But when we inhabit that realm, even even momentarily, we can appreciate um, the words of Zen saying. Great winds are powerless to disturb the water of a deep well. In samadhi, nothing bothers us. And to to whatever degree we can bring that settledness of mind into our daily lives, uh, we will be less bothered by people and circumstances. And so that means sitting every day. You're not going to even get a whiff of samadhi uh, unless you sit every day. Oh, there are, I guess there are rare, rare cases of people even who aren't practicing Zen, who, uh, like an act of grace, they suddenly find themselves in, in a samadhi briefly. 
but it is exceedingly rare, certainly without daily sitting. Beyond exaltation, beyond our, all our praises, the pure Mahayana, this is Hakuan just uh, rhapsodic about how his life changed through years of hard, serious practice. Saying, I, he's saying, my words just can't begin to encompass what a joy uh, we can experience through practice. And then he turns to uh, the real sort of the core faith in Zen. Maybe I already said that, but this is another one. Another core faith is uh, where he says, upholding the precepts, repentance, giving, countless good deeds, way of right living, all come from Zazen. And this is, this is, I think, when, when Zen originated in about the 6th century uh, with Bodhidharma, this is, was seen as exceedingly radical that with respect to the precepts, let's take the first line, upholding the precepts. Upholding the precepts comes willy-nilly from Zazen. We don't have to make a study of the precepts. Some of that can help. We don't have to uh, try to sort it all out, uh, the ethical dilemmas of, of the different precepts. We find ourselves through long practice, usually long practice, we find ourselves upholding the precepts without making a project out of it. It just happens. Likewise, repentance through long practice, we're more likely to feel repentant when we take missteps or hurt other people. And giving. Giving itself uh, is a, a, an outgrowth of, of, of practice. Zazen. You know, he's really, this is really uh, uh, an ode to sitting, zazen. Za means sitting, zen means the whole practice of moving through your life without unencumbered by thoughts. So zazen, strictly speaking, means sitting. Giving comes from zazen. Giving is the first of what is called the six perfections, the six paramitas. And the, the, what, what, the, really the way to see Zazen is itself a form of giving. Sitting is giving. Because it's giving up what is most dear to us, which is our thoughts. You could say it's the most demanding, the, the most difficult form of giving is giving up our thoughts. The countless good deeds, again, 
like the precepts. We're not, we don't have to uh, make an agenda out of doing good deeds. They happen as a result of sitting every day, more, more likely to happen. Of course, we're not just talking about all or nothing, black and white. It's, just, it's a process that for most of us takes many years. Same with the way of right living. I think he's drawing here with these examples, upholding the precepts, repentance, giving, countless good deeds, whatever. He's drawing from uh, what what other other forms of Buddhism at the time, what other sects emphasize. You know, there's a whole there's a whole sect of Buddhism historically that emphasize a, a study and mastery of, of the of the precepts, morality. all come from Zazen. The uh, French philosopher Pascal, I don't, he had no idea that how Zen-like this statement was of his. He said, all the unhappiness of people arises from the fact that they can't sit quietly in their own room. one more uh, stanza here. Uh, Thus one true samadhi extinguishes evil. He's still, he's still emphasizing the sitting. One true samadhi. An, um, an empty mind. And a mind that is not marred by unnecessary discriminations. We have to make discriminations all the time. That's, that's part of living. But uh, most of them are unnecessary. Now here I have to admit, I always have had trouble with this line. One true samadhi uh, extinguishes evils. Everything I've ever read about evil, our evils is that... uh, that we, we, the karma we have sown uh, in terms of the deluded ways we have thought and spoken and acted, that that is, is something that it can't be just um, eliminated. But I think what he's saying is, in samadhi, there are no evils. While in samadhi, there are no, are no evils. One way of understanding samadhi, if you're not haven't experienced it, is like a, there was a game we had when we were kids. I, I don't know if it's around still. Probably not. Uh, it's called etch a sketch, where you have this um, uh, kind of a screen. This is before computers, and uh, it had filings, metal filings, on it behind the screen, and. Uh, you could draw things with using two knobs. These two knobs 
left hand, right hand, well, you could trace things with these metal filings behind the screen. And then when you were done, you wanted to do something, do a new one, you just shook the Etch-a-Sketch. There, now you got a black, blank screen again. Oh, there must be a more contemporary analogy for this. <laughs> but that's the one that sticks with me. How it all is fresh and new. Clean. Clean. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions, at least while in samadhi. But, but even while not in samadhi, the, the work of uh, learning to detach from our thoughts, stop clinging to thoughts, uh, that will purify our karma. Karma. Yeah, let me mention... Karma is a, a, such a, a widely used and sometimes misused word. The, what I've come to understanding karma is our uh, habitual reactivity. The way we habitually react to people and circumstances and conditions. That's our karma. When he says... Samadhi purifies karma in as much as we don't have to react the same way to people and circumstances and conditions. We learn to refrain from that and that dissolves our mental obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? Yeah, when we are uh, unencumbered by thoughts of us and them and right and wrong and good and bad and so forth and self and other, then where, where, where are these dark paths? And then he comes back to the, his recurring teaching, the pure lotus land is not far away. That's at the end, too. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. So this, this chant of Hakuin's is, begins and ends, it's bookended by the fundamental teaching that there is nothing to, we need to acquire to be truly content and loving and giving. It's our nature. It's our nature to be that way. Well, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. And re- do the second half next week.